Good morning. <clears throat> it's very special to me and to my family that uh, we get to be with you. Um, sorry that my wife and children were not able to be here for this service too, but she is eight months pregnant and for some reason didn't want to hear me preach a second time this morning. Um, oh, incarnation has played a very significant role in the ways that God has shaped uh, my family and where he's led us. So we first came to visit Incarnation and interview for the curacy position in 2014 when our oldest son was three weeks old, um, and then we moved here when he was three months old. Uh, he's now almost four. Uh, we have Charlie, who is two, and then we have a third child due in April, as Aubrey said, which I realize that Easter is not good timing for a pastor to have a child, but nevertheless. Uh, you also, um, as you know, God uses you in many ways. The, the fact that you worship and labor for King Jesus here in Harrisonburg, I hope you realize how much God is using you in this. He is using you to bless East Rockingham County and the community of Elkton as well. So three years ago, you sent out a group to become Church of the Lamb. At that time, uh, we talked a lot about how God was wanted to bless Elkton through this new church. And over the last few years, while we've seen God bless Elkton, we also see God drawing people from all over East Rockingham County to come into Church of the Lamb and to receive life from the church. So just yesterday, I was talking with a lady in her 60s. She and her husband have been committed Christians for years. Um, but about a year ago, they came to our church, and she was telling me that God is reinvigorating her faith. And she didn't even know that needed to happen. Uh, so it's a beautiful thing to see God working in these ways. Uh, also yesterday, we had a group of about 10 people gathering to talk about a children's program, children's catechesis for ages, for second grade through fifth. Uh, we also are doing godly play and we're continuing to try to develop these things. And there are lots of people who are excited and want to see God minister to the children in this community. So... Thank you, Church of the Incarnation, for taking the risk to send people out and to become a church to bless this, this community. Uh, I want to tell you a story as I get started this morning. Uh, the day before Christmas Eve this past year, I took Samuel, our oldest, with me to pick up Katie's Christmas present, my wife. It was going to be a cross made by Zeke. It's actually uh, this cross, uh, that you don't need to know why I have my wife's cross on. Uh, all you need to know is that Zeke makes beautiful crosses. Zeke, you can pay me after the service. Um, so Samuel and I get to Zeke's, Zeke and Jesse's house. As many of you know, Zeke's shop is located just behind their house. Uh, we walk in and I ask Jesse, will you let Samuel stay inside while I go out to the shop? I wanted to try to keep the gift a secret from Samuel so that it would remain a secret from Katie, right? <laughs> now you probably know where this is going, huh? So I uh, get the cross, come back inside, and at some point as we're about to leave, I do not know, I, I can't remember how it happened. Either Samuel heard what the present was or he saw it. So as we are going to get into the van and all the way home, I'm telling Samuel, we're not going to tell mommy yet. We're going to wait and let her open it for Christmas. So we get home, we get out of the van, we're starting to walk inside, and I'm, I'm reiterating this. We're going to wait until Christmas. So we get inside, Samuel and, I mean, Charlie and Katie are downstairs. 
So Samuel runs downstairs to say hi to them. And I'm listening from upstairs. And I hear Katie, innocently of course, say to Samuel, Did you get mommy a present? (laughs) And Samuel says, Yeah! Pause. It's a cross! (laughs) Now, even though Katie knew what the present was, she would still be a little bit surprised. She didn't know that it was a beautiful walnut cross made by Zeke, right? There would still be some elements of surprise in it. I'm telling you this story because this is a, a little bit like what is happening in Mark's gospel. People are discovering that Jesus is someone unique and amazing but they don't know yet what this will mean. And even Jesus has tried to keep the news about him hushed a a bit until he can fill out the details himself. There are all these situations in the gospel where Jesus does something astonishing. He heals a man of leprosy or he causes a deaf man to hear for the first time. But then he tells them not to tell anyone about him. To keep him a secret. It's very strange. And similar to Samuel with the news of Katie's present. They cannot contain the news. As Jesus tells them to keep it quiet. They tell people all the more about him. Well by chapter 8. And actually again in our passage this morning. We start to get a sense of why this is the case. Why Jesus is asking people to keep him a secret. So in chapter 8 he says to his disciples. Uh, Or he asks them who they believe he is. And Peter makes the great confession, right? You are the Christ. And once again, Jesus tells them, don't tell anyone. Then for the first time, he begins to tell his disciples how his ministry is going to take shape from this point forward. That he will suffer, that he will be rejected, and that finally he will be killed. Then... After three days, he will rise again. Now, Peter at this point rebukes Jesus, right? But, Peter, but Jesus is insistent. He even then takes it a step further and he tells his disciples and everyone with him that if they're content to continue to follow him, they will have to take up their own crosses as well. That to truly find their life, they will have to give it up to him entirely. And he repeats himself concerning his own death and resurrection in our passage today on his transfiguration. The disciples are to tell no one about what they've seen until after he's risen from the dead. Now, I think at this point, we can start to catch a glimpse of why Jesus has gone to all the trouble of telling people not to speak about him. And this is why. Because apart from his death and resurrection... Jesus will only be misunderstood. Apart from his death and his resurrection, Jesus will only be misunderstood. So this is the first Sunday of Lent in the Christian calendar. It's a season in which Christians focus intensely on the life of Jesus, particularly his movement toward the cross. And as we watch Jesus, we aim to be shaped by him, to take up our own crosses and develop a way of life that's shaped by his cross. And the question the disciples began to face at this crucial moment is the same question that I think we face during the season of Lent. How does the cross and Jesus' call to death become a viable way of life? Is a call to death 
viable as a way of life? Really? Is it possible for us to live the good life and also live the way of the cross? Can these two things fit together? You know, I I think it's good for us to remember, no matter how familiar the cross may be, that at one level, it is still foolishness. Even non-Christians can say amen to this part of the sermon, right? Some Christians will agree. And for Christians, we all have to acknowledge that there are interior territories in all of our lives that still hold out to the way of Jesus, to the way of the cross, no matter how mature we are. So Lent is a call to continue the journey. And I think the story of Jesus' transfiguration provides answers to our questions of how this cruciform life is not only possible, but actually becomes the best life. First, I want us to see this morning that a life shaped by the cross, to live that life, we must see Jesus in his glory. To live a life shaped by the cross, we must have this vision of Jesus in his glory. So the disciples are struggling to absorb that the one in whom they're placing all their hopes, the, ones that, the one that they're giving their lives to, he's going to let himself be humiliated and killed. And then Jesus, after he's told them this, takes three of them up a mountain and he's transfigured. His clothes become this beaming, blinding white. And for just a few moments, the thin veil that separates heaven and earth is pulled back. They're allowed to peer into this other dimension of reality. And just after that, just after this vision begins, Jesus is flanked on one side each by Moses and Elijah. Two pillars of God's revelation to Israel. But it's clear from this passage that Jesus does not stand among them as an equal. Moses and Elijah always spoke on behalf of God. They were God's mouthpiece. But they were always distinct from God. But here, God speaks out of the cloud and tells the disciples to listen to his son. And this is different. Jesus not only speaks for God as a prophet, but as God's son, he embodies the words of God. He stands as the climactic fulfillment of God's revelation to humanity. God's plan to defeat evil and to redeem his creation. This is why Jesus isn't whisked away, allowed to escape death as Elijah did. Notice, when the cloud is lifted, Moses and Elijah have vanished. But Jesus remains as the sole bearer of God's new revelation that will be disclosed in the cross And in the resurrection. Jesus will go to death. But this will not be the death of just any man. This is the man who bridges heaven and earth. The one who initiates a future in which heaven and earth will one day be called by the same name. In the cross, Jesus will take on all the shame and sadness of the world. But... The transfiguration suggests that his glory, as strange as it is, will not be diminished by his death. Will not be. And this vision is what will enable his people to live their own lives shaped by the cross. So the Apostle Peter, who must have been very near to suffering his own martyrdom when he wrote his epistle known as Second Peter, 
he would reflect back on this day in writing to other suffering Christians. And did you hear it? Judging by Peter's words, these were Christians who were tempted to consider the faith, their faith in Jesus as a myth. So as much as we may read a story like this and doubt in our modern world that this is possible, we cannot look on the Bible and assume that these people weren't vulnerable to the same doubts. They were. And still, Peter assures them, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received glory, honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now here's where I th- what I think we should take from this. If the cross does not diminish the glory of Jesus, then neither will it diminish those who follow him who have to take up their own cross. So for those of you who have to swallow your pride at work, or those of you who have to swallow your pride in marriage, or students, in order to be faithful to Jesus in your sexuality, you feel isolated, alone. Following Jesus... Taking up this cross will not diminish you in any way. It will not. Seeing Jesus in his glory, knowing him in his undiminished power will allow us to walk through a season like Lent and the many times in our lives in which we must learn to be shaped by his cross. So to live a life shaped by the cross, we must have this vision of Jesus in his glory. That death, A shameful, humiliating death like the cross will still not diminish his power. Secondly, to live a life shaped by the cross, we must learn to listen to Jesus. And we have to first accept that this does not come naturally. It seems apparent in the story that the reason God tells the disciples at this moment to listen to Jesus is because they've stopped listening. They've started disagreeing with Jesus because he's told them he has to die and that they too will have a cross to carry. Now, before this, when Jesus was doing miracles, his disciples were all good with everything that Jesus was doing. But now that he's getting into this territory where he's saying, I'm going to have to die, his disciples are saying, wait, Jesus, you need to stick with healing people. This just isn't your field. We, We know what you need to do. And God is essentially telling them, stop talking. Listen. But the meaning surely is larger than this too. The God who spoke creation into being and sustains it with the power of his word now tells us to listen to his son. If the word of God has power to give life, what might the words of Jesus give to us? Could it be anything other than life itself? A fundamental belief of Christianity is that God speaks. And that in the scriptures, which tell us of Christ, Christ comes to us personally and he speaks to us. That when we engage scripture, we are actually engaging with the person of Christ. We are with him. But I want to offer one warning. Much of our engagement with Scripture, 
outside of worship, this place that we are to meet with Christ in our day-to-day lives, much of it isn't through listening, but it's through reading. And there's a, there can be a vast difference between these two things. So it's entirely possible to read without ever engaging another person. In fact, when I'm reading, much of the time, I don't want to engage another person. I'm at least half introvert. So when I read, I'm wanting to be on my own. But the point of Scripture is that we are coming to commune with someone. We're coming to listen for Christ, and we're coming to attend to the voice of another. Now, one way to do this is to do what the Lenten guide that's been provided during this season recommends for this week. And so the Lenten guide, if you go to it uh, today or tomorrow... It will tell you when you read scripture this week to read it aloud, to allow the words to become uh, your own voice and to enter into your ears in this way. And it sounds odd. It does. But it enables us to hear in a new way. I'm currently reading a book entitled The Cloister Walk by Kathleen Norris. Uh, Norris is a poet and also a lay member of a Benedictine monastery which essentially means that she doesn't live there full time and has not taken a vow of celibacy. And in the book, she tells the story of how listening to the scriptures read aloud in the monastery restored a faith that she had abandoned. So listen to how she describes this. Scripture was read and tears welled up in me, unexpected and unwelcome. I remembered how completely I had loved God and church as a child and how easily I had drifted away as a young adult. And then she says, listening was the key. Somehow the magic of hearing the Bible read aloud opened my eyes to recognize the extent to which I had allowed the resistance of the world to good to shape my faith in the kingdom of God. A secular worldview, she says, terribly sophisticated, but of little use to me in the long run, had taken hold of me. I had come to regard the world as radically and incurably corrupt. But as I allowed the words to wash over me, my full sense of the sacredness of the world revived. I had begun to learn to listen as a child again. You see, listening to Christ in Scripture in this way becomes a means of prayerful engagement. We are not just reading. We are listening to a person who is speaking to us. He calls us on the way of the cross, but he sustains us with the life of his word. So to be shaped by the cross, we we have to have this vision of Jesus in his glory. But we also have to learn to listen to him. So a Benedictine nun said concerning her own commitment to celibacy. One needs a deep prayer life to maintain a celibate life. It is only through prayer that the hard choices get made over time. Only prayer that can give me the self-transcendence that celibacy requires. Now, celibacy is one way of walking with Jesus on the path of the cross. Of living a cruciform life. Saying no to our desires and saying yes to the way of Jesus. But all of us have a way in which we are called to walk the way of the cross. 
And the only way that we can make those choices from day to day is by communing with Jesus and hearing his life-giving word that sustains us on that way. Now lastly, to be shaped by the cross, we must also look forward to the resurrection. So Jesus told the disciples at the end of the transfiguration, as they're walking down the mountain, he says to them, don't mention this until after my resurrection from the dead. Have you ever noticed that the cross is never spoken of in isolation? The cross is always followed closely, even hounded, if you will, by the resurrection. We do not live in a world like Narnia, as C.S. Lewis describes Narnia when the white witch is in control, where it is always winter but never Christmas. We do live in a world that has been shot through with resurrection. Our world is terribly ugly at points, yes. But it is also achingly beautiful at the same time. And the only way still to resurrection... The only way to the full good life that we all long for is through death. So the cross is not spoken of without resurrection. But neither can resurrection be spoken of apart from death. Death always precedes resurrection. And so we embrace the Lenten journey. We each learn to take up our cross but we know that it will not always be Lent. Easter is always coming, and with Easter is the resurrection. All things made new, including each of us, and all the ways that we are called to take up our cross and to die to ourselves. So, to answer our questions from the beginning, is the cross possible as a way of life? Yes, Is it possible that the cross can coexist with the good life? Actually, this is the only way to the good life. How do we do this? We behold Jesus in his glory and we see that he will remain undiminished by the cross. And so will we as we each bear our own. We learn to listen to Jesus, to be sustained on the way of the cross by his life-giving word. And we look forward to the resurrection when we and the world itself are fully made new. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.